This year, the world marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the largest terrorist attack in history. How has counterterrorism changed over the last 20 years? What is the future of the crisis management operations in the light of Afghanistan experience? And what are the main challenges of the military capability development related to new and emerging technologies? These and more questions will be answered in this episode of Raven on Air with the former director of CIA, David Petraeus. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast Raven on Air. My name is Jan Havranek, freely translated as John Raven, or Little Raven. I serve as Deputy Minister for Defense Policy and Strategy at the Czech Ministry of Defense, and my aim here is to give you a bit of an insight into international security and politics. It is my great honor to have David Petraeus in my podcast. David is a retired U.S. Army General and a former director of the CIA. He served 37 years in the U.S. Army, where he headed multinational forces in Iraq and later served as the commander of CENTCOM and as commander of U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan. David, welcome. Uh, Good great to be with to you, see you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for agreeing to come to Raven on Air, mm-hmm. uh, our podcast about security and defense. Uh, it's been quite a while since we last saw each other. Um, it was in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, a lot has changed um, in the international affairs, in the international security. Uh, and uh, here we are. Uh, now, you served as commander of ISAF um, uh, at the peak and then later as uh, the CIA director. So we're going to talk about Afghanistan. And Central Command before. And CENTCOM right. before, and so you served in Iraq. In Iraq, yeah. obviously, for four um, years. So you've been through this whole um, counterterrorism era, uh, if I may put it that way. And uh, uh, so perhaps let me start by asking you, uh, what's your take? How have we done since uh, 9-11? We just recently uh, remembered the 20th of, uh, of the attacks. And uh, how, do you, how do you look at what has happened over the past 20 years? Well, there's a variety of ways, a variety of lenses through which you can uh, examine what has taken place over the last 20 years. I think the most important uh, is to ask whether there have been any subsequent 9-11 attacks. And of course, there have not been. Uh, in fact, if you aggregate all of the attacks in the United States attributed to Islamist extremists, it's somewhere around 100 Americans have been killed. Uh, So that is very, very dramatically less, uh, I think, than most expected the day after 9-11, when there was a sense of strategic ticking time bomb, that there were more attacks coming. I was, in fact, deployed on 9-11. I was in Bosnia. uh, And uh, Interestingly, the very first counterterrorism operation after 9-11 was actually in Sarajevo, not in Afghanistan, and I was the deputy commander of it. Uh, and obviously, we've done you know, numerous fights and battles and counterterrorism campaigns and counterinsurgency campaigns that were necessary to deal with the not just the terrorists themselves, but the root causes and so forth since then. Uh, I think it's accurate to describe the capabilities of the group that carried out 9-11, Al-Qaeda, as being very considerably diminished, but still present and still has affiliates around the world, many of which did not exist before. Uh, The son of Al-Qaeda or offshoot of Al-Qaeda, even more barbaric, the Islamic State, uh, obviously is still 
uh, a threat, uh, albeit much reduced from when the Islamic State had a caliphate on the ground in Iraq and Syria. So you do see a metastasization of the extremist threat, Islamist extremist threat. Uh, And it does require, I think, among the lessons that we should have learned from the last 20 years of war is that you have to keep an eye on and pressure on Islamist extremist groups wherever they are, ideally doing it in support of host nation or local uh, authorities and forces uh, and seeking to limit our involvement to what might be described as train and equip, advise and assist and enable. And the enabling is very, very important because that's when you get where you get into the extraordinary capability that we now have but did not have even when I was, say, the commander in Iraq or even in Afghanistan, which is this proliferation of drones, this enormous armada that the U.S. in particular can put overhead uh, of areas that are of uh, enduring interest to us. And we can help our host nation partners enormously in that way. So, again, the bottom line would be, I think, you know, no, no further 9-11. Certainly our allies in, in Europe uh, have seen Islamist extremist threats over the years, some that were linked back to the original al-Qaeda, some others that manifest themselves from the Islamic State when it had its caliphate. But right now around the world, and noting that we will have to keep a close eye on Afghanistan because there are remnants of al-Qaeda, and certainly the Islamic State is showing its presence because it's carrying out uh, extremist attacks right now against the Taliban and, and uh, innocent civilians. They're, they were, of course, the perpetrator of the attack that killed 13 of our men and women in uniform and nearly 200 innocent Afghan civilians during the evacuation. Um, I, and, but you also, that I mean, it gets much broader than that, and I don't know that I want to get all the way into societal issues and, you know, the expansion of uh, legal authorities, particularly in the United States, frankly, the expansion of the executive branch uh, in the United States. Um, Those have all transpired. And I think that we're in a dialogue now in many countries around the world, certainly in my country, uh, about whether some of those authorities should be circumscribed a bit, whether they should be refined, what have you. But of course, doing it I think it's very important right at the outset to note in a context where the most important endeavor in the world uh, is certainly no longer Islamist extremism. It is the effort of the U.S. and its allies and partners around the world to develop a coherent, comprehensive whole of governments with an S on the end. So it's all of the capabilities of all governments of the U.S. and our allies and partners uh, with respect to China to, to try to achieve a as mutually beneficial a relationship as is possible with China, but noting that there clearly are going to be areas of uh, considerable competition uh, and obviously seeking to avoid and to, to prevent, to deter anything that could become true conflict. Wow. Um- <laughs> A lot of a lot of keywords there. So let's let's try to unpack uh, some of those. Uh, first, uh, let's stay with the counterterrorism for a bit. Uh, you mentioned it's been critical to retain those capabilities. So my question would be, how do we do that, especially at times when there seems to be a lack of appetite 
uh, to be sending troops in large numbers abroad. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, when it has proven uh, to be quite difficult to work with some of the host nations, if I can be uh, diplomatic, uh, and as a result, and as, uh, as the events of Kabul in, uh, in this, this past summer have shown, um, even if we have a sustained and dedicated and tailored strategy when it comes to security um, uh, transition, uh, we may not always uh, win in, in the sense of, uh, of this uh, campaign being successful. So, so what is an immediate lesson learned from this? Okay. And uh, how do we make sure that we sort of stay, uh, we keep addressing the threat of uh, Islamism uh, against the backdrop, backdrop of the other challenges you've mentioned? Well, first of all, think of the United States in particular, but the US and its allies and partners as the guy in the circus who gets a plate on the stick gets it spinning, then goes over, gets another plate, and then gets it spinning. And and so, you know, the biggest plate on the biggest stick is the one that represents, again, the relationship with China. It's probably bigger than all the others put together. We have to keep that context. But there's lots of other plates on other sticks. I mean, we still have to worry about North Korea. We have to worry about Russia, especially where we are right now uh, doing this in Poland. Um, you have to worry about Iran. I think Iran is actually much, much more pressing than people realize right now. I think that's the one that's going to dominate uh, attention in the literally in the weeks and months ahead. And again, plenty of other challenges, cyber, domestic populism, you name it, they're all. But also there are a lot of little plates and they are, for example, the effort in Somalia. Uh, it's, it's many other efforts throughout Africa where the United States has some 7,000 troops deployed, helping host nations, in some case allies like France and others, all working together to do what I mentioned earlier. Because the big idea here is that you have to keep an eye and pressure on Islamist extremists wherever they are. Now, ideally, you would conduct a civil military, you know, call it a counterinsurgency campaign that would actually get at the root causes of these. But if you can't do that, in part, maybe your partners are not up to it or whatever it may be, you still have to have the counterterrorism component of that, which is to, to continue to disrupt, to degrade, sometimes even perhaps to defeat, as we did uh, again in Iraq and Syria. But we did it supporting the Iraqis and supporting the Syrian Democratic Forces, not doing it uh, for them, uh, enabling them to be sure with intelligence surveillance, reconnaissance assets, drones in particular, with precision strike and with intelligence fusion but not, again, doing the fighting on the front lines for them. I personally think that Afghanistan is a bit of an aberration uh, because the truth is that this administration, everywhere else around the world where there are Islamist extremists, and that at the end of the day, that's the root. That was the main mission in Afghanistan all along. It was to eliminate the sanctuary in which al-Qaeda planned the 9-11 attacks when the area was controlled by the Taliban. And then it was to keep them from reestablishing a sanctuary similar to that, which they tried to do multiple times, as you recall, including when I was the commander of both Central Command and uh, ISAF and even when, they were, when I was the D, uh, director of the CIA. And then, of course, more recently, it's also to uh, disrupt and degrade the Islamic State, which still has a capability that it could, over time, if allowed to reconstitute sufficiently, could manifest the kind of threat that projected terrorism, inspired, uh, directed, organized, uh, and so forth, uh, terrorist acts in European countries in quite 
significant numbers, as you may recall, at the height of the Islamic State when it was in Iraq and Syria. And, of course, it also had the virtual caliphate that was, in many respects, more damaging than the ground caliphate because it was through the virtual caliphate, through their skillful use of the Internet, social media platforms, and so forth, cyberspace, that they were able to have this disproportionate effect elsewhere in the world. And so we can't allow them to have that. So my point is that, again, this administration, I think, has done an admirable job of maintaining what we were doing everywhere else. In Iraq, we have, you know, reduced it modestly and said we're not going to do combat operations. We haven't done combat operations there in two years anyway. Uh, And that's really for domestic Iraqi politics as much as it is anything else. And the truth is Americans at home are fine with us maintaining forces like that in small numbers as long as it is sustainable. And sustainability is measured in terms of the expenditure of blood and treasure. And by and large, uh, they have been very sustainable. I would argue, in fact, that Afghanistan was sustainable because, as you know, John, I have had a different view of that. I felt that what we should have had was the strategic patience to just continue a mission that Yes, the, ero- their, the security situation had eroded. Yes, our partners were very imperfect. Yes, you know, yes, 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 it's frustrating, it's hard. Right, right. But really, it was down to, you know, if you, even if you count all of our counterterrorism forces, it was maybe 3,500 U.S. troops, 8,500 NATO, 18,000 contractors. And, and you keep uh, the Taliban from doing what they're going to do to a country, which is going to become a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, And this is going to be very serious, by the way. I mean, the world is going to be seized with images of the lights going off in Kabul, uh, of people starving. I mean, this is already among the most, the poorest countries in the world. They had a terrible harvest this year because of the drought. Their economy obviously has completely collapsed. Anybody who had money took it and ran. Um, And they have no reserves to draw on around the world, and the IMF and World Bank have them on hold. So, they are in serious trouble, uh, and it is going to be a very, very significant, again, uh, humanitarian disaster that has the potential for the kinds of ramifications that we saw from Syria uh, at the height of the civil war uh, when there were millions of refugees flowing out of Syria. Of course, a lot easier to get from Syria to the Schengen zone uh, than it is to get there from Afghanistan. But again, if people are sufficiently desperate, uh, they're going to try to figure out how to how to get out of the country and get to a country that has more opportunity. I think what we saw was the multidimensional CNN effect. If you recall, uh, Iraq 1991, that was sort of the first uh, first time when uh, when these kind of things, uh, the images were broadcasted live, and uh, and then think of uh, Kabul 2021. I mean, that really shows you. It's going to be a really hard winter. Right. Uh, and again, keep in mind, they pay for electricity from the Central Asian states to be transmitted to them, and they import refined fuel products from Iran and some others to generate electricity, and they're not able to pay for it. Um, so it's going to be, this is going to be a very, very long, cold, dark winter uh, for the Afghans, and I very much feel for them already. You've mentioned the technologies and the use of internet and cyberspace uh, and uh, at the peak of the Islamic State in, in Iraq, I mean, indeed, they, they, they made a full use. A very dangerous capacity that they had in Raqqa. You may, may recall that it was in Raqqa, Syria, the headquarters of the caliphate in Syria, where they built this extraordinary uh, internet capacity 
And they were very skillful in how they used social platforms, how they exploited um, these different social media and ways of transmitting messages and so forth. And of course, when they were succeeding, you know, nothing succeeds in recruiting like success. And when they were seen to be succeeding, uh, of course, there were also a thousand or more would-be jihadis flocking to their colors every month. But this is also what binds the state and non-state actors. You know, the creative exploitation of uh, of the current technology, be it the emerging disruptive technologies, as, as they are called, uh, it really seems to be gradually becoming a must-have capability if we want to be relevant and if we want to stay current uh, vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis Russia, but also vis-a-vis non-state well, it, actors. It, well, it, yes, I mean, it's a much bigger issue than that, obviously. I mean, the, the whole issue of how social media and the Internet and platforms are being exploited by those who wish us ill, obviously, is one of the big issues for the day um, and one with which we're going to continue to grapple, I'm sure, for the years ahead. You've seen the military capabilities developing. Uh, What's your take on the implementation of these technologies in our traditional capability mix? Uh, You've seen various defense uh, defense policy strategies, military development strategies emerging. Um, Are we up for the uh, the race, uh, really? Because uh, are we trying to outwin China or are we trying to keep up with the pace of the technological development? What do you think? Well, we want to be on the cutting edge of all technologies uh, to the extent that we can be. Uh, I think we have the capacity and the capability to do that. Um, in speaking for the United States, we, we have to, and we know, and we are doing. We are transforming uh, our military services. Keep in mind that the, you know, the big pots of money are for Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and now space and cyber. Um, and we are literally transforming our capabilities now with a not an exclusive focus by any means because again if you're the guy in the circus you got to keep more than one plate spinning and we have organizational adaptations that we've made to to enable us to continue to do these smaller operations the advise and assist break brigades for example that the u.s army has established are very very good for that but the focus the you know the main effort far and away is going to be on uh, changing uh, how we operate, the operational concepts, uh, so that you're using all capabilities, you know, all domain uh, capabilities, the connectivity, the integration of artificial intelligence and machine learning and increasingly unmanned everything, um, some of which may actually at some point be completely autonomous with respect once, you know, the final action has been authorized to that autonomous machine. I mean, this is breathtaking stuff. And we are we have been moving down the road on this, uh, but, but you will see an even greater emphasis of that now. And I think the real question uh, when you sit in Central Europe, frankly, is can all of NATO's allies make these same kinds of transitions and maintain a degree of interoperability? I mean, this, is always, this has always been a problem. I mean, this is all the way since when I was a speechwriter for the Supreme Allied Commander uh, back during the days of the Cold War. Uh, it was, there were interoperability issues. Uh, they seem trivial by today's standards when you talk about trying to get everything to connect and how important connectivity and self-healing networks and all of the sensors and 
so forth that we will have, all of which will be operating at machine speed, not at, not at human speed. And in many cases, I think we're going to have to come to grips with the reality that the person in the loop, which everyone agrees should be maintained for ethical reasons, but you may start finding that you define the person in the loop as the algorithm that was written and that's where the person was in the loop. And maybe there is some final decision similar to what we do with air defense systems where we go weapons free. So in other words, the weapon now, you know, if it, if it cues, the weapon can release uh, or something similar to that, if you will, that kind of concept. Uh, but again, that's what, that's what everyone is working through. And I certainly think we have the capacity. I, I think that out of the enormous spending bills that will ultimately be passed in the United States. And no one knows whether it's going to be, actually, I think we're not thinking 4.5 trillion in aggregate anymore, but it's probably going to be on the order of a grand total of somewhere around $3 trillion. That is a huge amount of money uh, for infrastructure, albeit human as well as physical. And a fair amount of that is going to go into, into the real bleeding edge capabilities when it comes to uh, items such as uh, chips and, and, and uh, quantum and all these other capabilities uh, where the competition is currently ongoing. But of course, what we want to do, and again, this is the idea, if you have a coherent, comprehensive whole of government's approach, hopefully you can uh, influence uh, a would-be adversary, certainly ensure that that would-be adversary recognizes the capabilities that we have and the willingness to employ them and to avoid truly serious conflict, and perhaps, again, uh, touch wood, um, recognize that perhaps we should do a bit more uh, cooperation on some of the issues that are challenging the world, such as uh, the pandemic, the global economy, uh, the environment, uh, and a variety of other very much shared issues, um, and reduce some of the areas that could be uh, more competitive and potential conflictual. You know, as a defense policy official in a post-communist country, uh, a relatively still a new NATO member, I find this extremely difficult and challenging because on the one hand, we have to keep up with the transition from the communist uh, um, organization of the armed forces towards a a NATO interoperability standard. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the past 20 years have been really about out-of-area operations yes. with tactical, low-scale uh, mm-hmm. war fighting. So on, uh, you have but even their integration and op- interoperability it, was so, difficult. So it's a multi-dimensional integration effort. Think of the feeds for the, you know, the feeds for the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance platform. I mean, and entered all the, the new technologies. As, you know. Even as the commander of, you know, again, an operation that wasn't. As anywhere near as high end as we're talking about, but it was very high end, actually, if you think about it. But as the commander of both a coalition and the U.S. component of that coalition, every single NATO nation, every single one, had caveats, so some limits, and that's on what they were able to do. I'm talking about what they're limited to do in mission, so forth. Moreover, every one of them had some limitation when it came to certain capabilities. And what we had to do in those cases was the United States had to, had to provide what was missing. Sometimes it's very straightforward, you know, could be 
special forces. It could be aerial medevac. It could be, again, certainly a lot of times it was drones with a downlink and a team that could do that. Often it was an intelligence plug so that we could send uh, U.S. and they could launder it uh, for the country uh, so that they could benefit from it as well. Um, but again, this was quite complex. Uh, and and that was for, again, an operation that at the end of the day, people were still under rucksack with body armor. And here we're talking about platforms, many of which will be unmanned, all connected, all queuing and drawing on sensors and you know all the way out to outer space uh, and down to the subsurface uh, it, it is it's somewhat mind-boggling in certain respects and so I can appreciate what you're saying about again how just sheer challenging this is it is and I can imagine the US uh, given the uh, the richness and the uh, the potential the technological and economic potential of uh, the European allies will not always be willing to uh, serve uh, that the role we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of uh, being the integrator and provider of uh, logistics and ISR and all the support I, you I, mentioned. I'm not so sure. I think I think the U.S. will continue to do that. Um, I think one of the reminders that I've had, just being here in Central Europe and talking with Eastern European countries, ministers and some Western and, and as well, um, is just a reminder that even in the period, the previous administration, where you know you could get diverted by tweets pretty easily, um, there was much much more continuity in what we did. If you followed the troops, followed the money, and followed the policy, everything was pretty much linear from the previous administration, and it continues that way now. I mean, it is all you know. We maintained the forces that we have. Uh, put the forces in the Baltics and have maintained them, put forces in Poland and have maintained them, brought an armor brigade back, uh, stood up another four-star headquarters within NATO for the uh, forward onward movement, if you will, to push from where the inner German border used to be, you know, out to where we might really need forces and so forth. And again, there's, there's vast amounts of that, and that has all continued. Um, and I see no sign, uh, again, President Biden is an Atlanticist. I mean, he is a creature of the Munich Security Conference. Even when he was out of office, he went to the Munich Security Conference and, in fact, presented the award uh, to Senator McCain's uh, wife. Uh, Senator McCain was ill then and couldn't travel to Munich that year. But so, no, I think that will continue. And I think, actually, if anything, the experience with Afghanistan and, you know, we have to acknowledge the... um, AUKUS, uh, Australia-UK-US agreement, uh, where Australia decided to uh, halt the plan to buy the submarines from France, the diesel subs, and to get nuclear submarine technology from the US and the UK, and, and acknowledging that there was less communication from Australia to France than the US thought there had been, and so this caused quite a contretemps. But, but the bottom line is, because that has happened, you know, in part because of that, you have our Secretary of State in Europe now. Mm-hmm. The National Security Advisor is about to head out. Uh, the National Security Advisor is talking every single day to the, you know, the French counterpart and uh, the French ambassador. I mean, there's been an intensification of the communication in the wake of Afghanistan and in the wake of AUKUS because of, and 
awareness in Washington, a keen awareness that our allies feel that we didn't consult them sufficiently before Afghanistan and that Australia had not consulted or warned uh, France adequately when that agreement was announced. And just because of that, uh, I think you are likely to see more attention actually to Europe than because keep in mind, they had just gone through this very carefully orchestrated six month period in which it's all moving very smoothly. You know, the president and our senior uh, secretaries of defense and state and so forth engage with first the Indo-Pacific because that's the priority, show the priority. You get the quad together virtually, then more recently physically. Uh, You had all the the meetings there at the summit level, uh, the president uh, again virtually. You then come to the G7 hosted in the UK, you do a UK summit, you do a G7 summit, you then go across and you do a EU summit and a NATO summit. I mean, and you pick a few others along the way. And of course you do Vladimir Putin and things are really moving along well. And then of course the bottom falls out with Afghanistan. That the, Literally the oxygen is sucked up for Afghanistan for a sustained period of time. Uh, and you have that again, feeling in the wake of that, that there was insufficient consultation. At the very least, it was a pretty chaotic uh, exit, to put it mildly. And then on top of that, you have AUKUS. And so I think there is just a hypersensitivity among people who actually, again, are very inclined. I mean, Tony Blinken is, is a Francophile from the word go. I mean, he's a completely fluent French speaker, lived in Paris, loves it. I think he was back there yesterday or there today. Um, and so I think this, they're reminded, don't take Europe for granted. Um, and, and I think that message is really, I last week spent time with, in, in off-the-record sessions with very, very senior people in the White House and elsewhere in our government, and that message came through. Well, that's, that's reassuring. That's good to hear. And thank you for being the advocate uh, for the transatlantic. Uh, well, I am calls. a transatlanticist as well. Uh, so really remember, a I'm the of son trust. of a Dutchman here. Yeah. Let's yeah, not yeah, forget yeah, yeah, a stubborn yeah. Dutchman, to be yeah. sure. A little sea captain. Yeah. It, it really is a matter of trust. You know, mm-hmm. one thing is the business case. Uh, it is. But, uh, but the, the most important part, yep. what really matters to us Europeans, yep. is uh, uh, yep. to sense that trust. Yep. And one other huge point should not be overlooked. Um, the defense budget in the U.S. is once again going to be huge. There will be people who will say it's not growing as fast as it. I mean, just the fact that it is, keep in mind how enormous it was in the Trump years, and it's actually going to grow. Now, it may or may not entirely keep up with inflation, and of course, how you parse that, because it includes the Department of Energy and some others. But, I mean, we're talking... 740 billion or so in aggregate. Again, you got to strip some other things out. But the bottom line, it's going to be way over 700 billion dollars for defense. That is an enormous amount of money. And and if if nothing else, that's an area to focus on because you can have all the great rhetoric and strategy and everything else in the world, but if you only spend in our case 600 billion on defense, that stuff doesn't matter because you're not going to have the capabilities to operationalize Uh, your great new concepts, doctrines, and ideas. Indeed. Can we talk about military leadership towards the end of the podcast? Uh, I always try to uh, ask that question uh, when I talk to people like you who have been the examples of leadership throughout their career. 
Um, what do you think are the, the qualities of a good leader and how should we work uh, on leadership issues with the new uh, transatlantic generation, if I can put it this way? Well, there's a lot of questions in that. And so let me start by Maybe talking about... Maybe for a about, separate podcast as well. Well, it is actually. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've built an entire website at Harvard's Belfer Center on strategic leadership. I was a fellow there for six years, and for a couple of years we did nothing but build this... Uh, intellectual architecture for strategic leadership. So let me start by talking about that because the truth is, even though very, very few people in a career will truly be strategic leaders, in other words, at the very top where they actually have the, the scope to determine the strategy. So let's say commanding the surge in Iraq. I mean, I was basically sent back over with Ambassador Crocker and told, fix it. Uh, yes, we'll give you extra forces, but you guys figure out. So we we determined we were going to have a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign. It was going to include, include taking back control from the Iraqi military. We were going to clear hold, not clear and hand off, clear hold, uh, rebuild, and gradually transition. We were going to promote reconciliation. We're, you know, again, all these different big ideas. Uh, we we're going to uh, pursue the irreconcilables even more relentlessly. Again, there were many, but it basically that was up to me and the team that I had. So even though people may not be the strategic leader, they will have, uh, they will be engaged in helping strategic leaders. So that's why I want to start by focusing on strategic leadership because there's four tasks. And so you ask, what is it that a leader should be able to do it's to exercise these four tasks. Now, every leader all the way down is still exercising these tasks as well, but not with but within the context that is established by the strategic leader. So, you know, when I was a battalion commander, it was still sort of up to me to figure out what are the five areas on which we're really going to focus. I had that sufficient latitude. Wasn't quite a strategic leader, but I was still Again, getting the big ideas right. So that's task number one. A strategic leader has to get the big ideas right. If you don't get that right, by the way, this is true in business too, everything else you do from there is building on a shaky foundation. So that's task number one. There's all, if you go to the website, it tells you how do you get the big ideas right. You, know, you do it inclusively, openly, transparently, iteratively. I've never found the tree under which you sit and you get hit by Newton's apple on the head fully formed that's with the big idea. It's rather a, you know, like shaking, shaping a clay object. So you got to get the big ideas right. That's the strategy. And by the way, um, we didn't get that right in Afghanistan for the first nine years. I, I, I argue that we didn't get the inputs right Mm -hmm. until late 2010, mean, maybe, maybe a year earlier. With the beginnings of the ISAF. It was really the beginning of, well, I'd give the credit to General McChrystal. Mm -hmm. Certainly I was at Central Command then and then continued but also built out further. So it's in that 2009, 2010 timeframe, we finally got the big ideas right. Um, you then have to communicate the big ideas throughout the breadth and depth of the organization. So, you know, you ask what are the skills that people need to have? Well, one of them is not only to think and get the big ideas right, you have to actually be able to communicate them as well. Uh, and you have to do that in speeches and writing and your, you know, the commander's counterinsurgency guidance that I issued, the first day letter I gave, the first day speech. 
change the mission statement, change the campaign plan, and you know, constantly uh, communicating that and doing that again relentlessly. Task number three is overseeing the implementation of the big ideas. This is what we normally think of as leadership, actually. This is where you provide the example, you provide energy, uh, you see it for yourself, you're at the point of decisions, how you spend your time, what is your battle rhythm, what do you do every single day of the week, what do you do a couple times a week, once a week, every other week, monthly, command and staff gathering, the quarterly ambassador and general uh, review of the campaign plan, etc. All of that, it's the hiring, it's attracting the best people, it's retaining them, it's incentivizing them. It's allowing those that aren't meeting the standard to move on, by the way, without usually public executions. Uh, it's all of it. This is sort of the tactics, techniques, and procedures of leadership. Um, but again, crucial, because if you have gotten the big ideas right, and if you have been able to communicate them through the breadth and depth of the organization all the way down to the strategic sergeant or strategic lieutenant who's going outside the wire, turning big ideas at your level into concrete action on the ground under body armor and Kevlar, um, then again, it's about how do you oversee this campaign? How do you orchestrate? How do you drive it? I mean, how do you actually, you know, as a commander, you, you really do drive a campaign and you have to do it pretty relentlessly. And, you know, some stuff will be going fine and some people won't need much, uh, you know, need a very light hand on the reins. And there are going to be some other activities where you are personally going to have to get involved and, and really push it forward. The fourth task is often overlooked. And that is to sit down formally, I felt uh, it was necessary. I mean, you do it at other times, but you have to determine how to refine the big ideas. What are the changes that are needed to them so that you can do it all again and again and again? And so as on my battle rhythm, once a month, you'll remember all the lessons learned teams that we had on the battlefield. You know, you had an Army lessons learned, Marine Corps, Special Ops, Asymmetric Warfare Group, my counterinsurgency center. I mean, the list was endless, and they're all headed by colonels. So we'd have a process whereby they all came together. They worked through my chief of staff, and then one hour a month, I sat with them, and they gave me basically proposals where they'd identified lessons because their their name was wrong. They're not lessons learned. They're lessons identified, but I didn't want to change the signage. Um, And... (laughs) And you don't learn the lesson until you incorporate it in the big ideas, until you refine the big ideas, communicate them, oversee it, and and again, continue that process. Now, there were many other instances of this on my battle rhythm. I forced myself to sit down with the strategic planners at my level. I think it was twice a week. I, again, had all these activities on the battle rhythm that were action-forcing mechanisms for me. I mean, I knew I had to force myself to do this because, remember, it's 120 degrees out. It's, it's a grinding experience. You're taking casualties. There's setbacks. There's just endless frustration, endless visits from Washington and other capitals. And if you don't force yourself to do that, uh, you'll push it off. So, again, you have to, have to force yourself. And, by the way, think of this in the business world mm-hmm. where you, you remember Kodak, which had 2,000 patents on digital photography and failed to change the big idea sufficiently in time to take advantage of that. And they other companies beat them to digital photography. Right. They stayed film and they don't it exist. The never came back. No, yeah. no, never. And, and there's lots of examples of this. Again, in, in, if they go to that website, 
at the Belfer Center uh, at Harvard, they'll find other examples. I also hold out Netflix as an example of a company. Mm -hmm. Reed Hastings, I believe, is one of the truly great strategic leaders uh, of the world. And I, and I cite, I've sat with him, I've talked through this. He almost explicitly does this. It's a slightly different intellectual architecture. But he basically goes through these same processes and explicitly and is constantly figuring out, okay, you know, now we put Blockbuster out of business, now what do we do? Well, now we can download uh, content because instead of mailing it out, okay, now what do we do? Uh, we're dominating that. Well, now it's developed content, you know, House of Cards, Breaking Bad, all this. Right. And then they, the next one is they buy movie picture studios. I mean, it just keeps, and of course they're going global and a variety of other, but how he keeps those big ideas powerful uh, is what is so extraordinary. And you can see others around the world. Obviously, Jeff Bezos at Amazon would be a you know, phenomenal example. Jack Ma with Alibaba and, and so forth. Well, David, the time flies. Um, I have about uh, 35 other questions I would like to ask you, but I'm afraid we'll have to leave it for the second uh, volume of this episode. So thank you ha happy so much. To happy to return. Thank you so much for coming to Raven on Air. Uh, this has been a fascinating, um, some 35, 40 minutes uh, Really want to thank you from my heart and uh, uh, looking forward to, to the next one. Pleasure is mine, Jan. Great to be with you again. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in this episode. We will be back soon. For more security and defense content, you can find me on Twitter. The link is in my bio. Stay tuned.